to episode 51 of the Retrospectives podcast, 2020 Mailbag. James, are you excited to be answering viewer questions instead of playing video games for a change? I'm always excited to have a week or two off to uh, catch up on my, uh, you know, uh, modern gaming backlog, but uh, we'll be happy to get back to the normal broadcasting in a few weeks. Uh, How have you been, Patrick? It has been an absolute delight having a break from playing these retro video games. As much as I love them, um, there, like you, there have been some games on the back burner that I've finally had some time to play. I've been playing a lot of a game called Underrail that, uh, as you know, I've been gushing to about the last couple of times I caught up with you and um, probably write a review of it when I'm finished. But it's uh, it's one of those long, heavy RPGs. So I've got a while to go yet. Um, what about yourself? I know the new WoW expansion came out, right? Yeah, and it's been a lot better than I um, had anticipated. I think this has been probably their best launch in you know years at this point. I think uh, they've done a really good job of uh, incentivizing players to play a whole range of different and fun content you know so i've been you know having a blast honestly this is the most fun i've had in world of warcraft since oh i can't even remember um so you know been really happy with it so far yeah so yeah we've enjoyed the break but we're eager to get into these mailbag questions so for those who are listening for the first time uh, we are the retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight james and i normally play through a retro game of the past And then we have a detailed discussion and review of it. But as we're at the end of the year, uh, we're having one of our special mailbag episodes. We did one of these last year in 2019, and we thought it'd be good to do another one in 2020. Basically, we have this um, pretty active Discord community where uh, we get grilled for our taste in gaming, (laughs) where we discuss modern games, old and new, and um, occasionally slip into degeneracy and talk about an anime show or two, but we try to avoid that as much as possible. (laughs) Honestly, uh, if you're listening to us for the first time on this episode, what the hell are you doing? Go and listen to a good episode (laughs) like uh, Archimedean Dynasty or uh, Thief 1 or 2. Those are my recommendations. Why 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 mailbag yeah, two of all things? Come on. <laughs> yeah, this one's this one's for the fans. So what we've done is we've uh taken questions from our Discord server over the year uh over the past year. And uh over the course of this episode we're going to answer all of them. Well that's the uh that's the plan anyway. So James, um are you happy to jump right into it? Yeah, sure. So um, the first question we're going to start with is from a user called Vexus. He's got a couple of questions, but this first one is kind of interesting. So his question was fairly simple. It was, how do you view objectivity regarding games that you like? And I thought I would turn this question into a discussion James and I had off air on our previous episode, Dark Souls. It's become apparent that... James and I have very different styles when it comes to reviewing games and the degree of objectivity that we strive for in reviewing games. So let me start by explaining how by explaining how I view reviewing games and then I'll give James a chance to explain his approach and then uh, we'll bounce off one another a bit, I'm sure. So my view when it comes to reviewing games is that subjectivity is implicit whenever you review a game whenever you talk about a game you are giving your subjective opinion on that video game because of that 
I don't really care at all how other players might have approached the game. I don't care how critically acclaimed it is. I don't care what other people think of it. All I care about is giving the audience my opinion on the video game. And I think that I should have to give a good opinion. I think I should have to justify my opinion. But when it comes down to brass tacks, the only thing that matters and the only thing I care about is the substantive way in which I engage with the video game. So when it comes to objectivity regarding games that I like, I am not objective and I will never be objective regarding games that I like or dislike. All I can do to the best of my ability is give my honest opinion with justifiable evidence. And that's what I strive to do. Mm, And your kind of, I guess, uh, philosophy behind this is that if somebody listens to our show for longer enough, um, they can get a general idea um, of how their taste matches up with yours, right? So if um, they they realize that Patrick and their uh, points of view are pretty similar, um, then if you like a game, they'll probably like a game too. And if you hate it, they'll also hate it, right? That's it exactly. And I think that that's how I interact with reviewers. If I find a reviewer that I like, I learn how they feel and think about video games, not because and not be like, oh, they said they like this because this is the truth. You just learn to understand their biases. And when you filter their review through their biases from your perspective, you can get a really good idea of of how good that game is and how well it will mesh with what you like. Mm, I think one of the shortcomings of this review style, and I don't think there's a perfect review style or like, you know, I just have my preferred one and Patrick has his preferred one. But one of the shortcomings with this style review is that I think the first time they listen to your review, they're probably going to get less value out of it than the you know, the future reviews because they know you as a reviewer better, right? Uh, That is true, but I would counter by saying that if you want to know what a game does, you can read the back of the box or you can read the Wikipedia page or, you know, you can gather information. You can gather information in a hundred different ways. The value of reviewers is for the reviewer to tell you what they think. And I agree that on the face of it, a openly biased reviewers opinion would be would be would seem to be less useful but that's only true if that's the only review you read Mm. if you read five reviews i think the openly biased reviewers review is going to be the most valuable by far Okay. See, I think I I really disagree with that statement you made about reading the back of the box or whatever. Any material uh, provided by the company themselves is going to be hugely misleading, honestly. Uh, I think it's going to be so biased that it's almost worthless um, for determining whether you're going to like the game. So... For me, I guess my style, the way I like to approach it is that I want to set out to provide my listeners with as much information as possible um, in order to make a decision for themselves as to whether they'll like it or not. So while I kind of agree with Patrick that like true objectivity in reviews is basically impossible, I think that it's impossible due to, you know, the level of complexity required to be able to, you know, analyze something on that level. But I think that you can provide objective statements 
um, from which people can get useful information from. Uh, for example, uh, a game that we, I guess, or Patrick in particular, was quite negative on was Lunar Silver Star Story. Um, and while I still liked that game, something that I could say objectively is that Lunar Silver Star Story's plot is an extremely classical uh, hero's journey tale to the point of it being boring, right? Like it's nothing special. Um, it's just the most vanilla story ever conceived. Um, and if that's, and I can say that if that's, you know, if that would bore you, then you're not going to like this game, right? Whereas I think, you know, Patrick will say stuff like, I hate this game. And, you know, that offers a slice of information in my eyes, but it doesn't offer multiple different people, uh, you know, different degrees of using that information, which I value a lot in reviews. So I guess what you're saying is that as a reviewer of JRPGs, because I hate JRPGs, I'm not drawing the same level of nuance and distinction between these different JRPGs, which I think is a fair thing yeah. to say. Uh, if you love JRPGs, like you li love them dearly, you're probably not going to get a lot of value out of me saying JRPGs are terrible because a lot of the reasons I think they're terrible are because you like them. Yeah. However, you do have the bonus of if I ever do say that there are aspects of a JRPG I appreciate, they must be pretty damn special. Yeah, that's true. And I guess like, like the reason we had this conversation behind the scenes on the Dark Souls episode was because in Dark Souls, I pointed out that, um, you know, if you're not a mechanically strong player, you can still get value out of beating bosses by pure grinding. This is a style of play that Patrick would never participate in, right? He thinks- I vomited in my mouth at that thought. <laughs> yeah, he thinks the best way to play this game, the only way to play this game, uh, is by getting good. But I think that, you know, uh, if I was to make a review of Dark Souls and say this is a game purely about getting good, um, then those players who want to play it this other way are going to hear this almost wrong and misleading message, in my opinion. Whereas, you know, the fact that it offers two kinds of playstyles, one which I agree is probably less fun for most people, um, you know, it's important to know that that option exists when deciding to play the game, you know. So I think that trying to give your personal opinion as well as noting other bits of important information is important when delivering a review yeah and i uh after thinking it over i can appreciate the difference in review styles but i yeah i'm i'm always going to be on the on the style of wearing my biases proudly on my sleeves people know where i stand that's for sure absolutely so um i think we'll go on to another question i'll pick one this time and this one was from uh, James, not myself, but uh, somebody that we know in real life. A great guy. I'll always like hanging out with him. His question was, what were your favorite games to record and discuss on the show? So, Patrick, do you, do you have an answer for this question? I've uh, vetoed Dark Souls from this answer <laughs> because, because choosing Dark Souls feels like cheating. So um, I, I deliberately haven't chosen uh, Dark Souls. I think that my favorite episode to record and discuss was actually the System Shock episode that we did with really? <laughs> Nick from Salt City Games. So what one of the one of the I think our most enjoyable episodes arise when there's a difference of opinion between you and I, James. 
And System Shock is a game where there was definitely a difference of opinion. Like, I thought it was heavily flawed, but I quite enjoyed the experience overall. Whereas from memory, you... I think it's the worst game I've ever played. I fucking hate that yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> and, um, and Nick, interestingly, was somewhere in the middle, but probably a bit closer. I think to he was leaning to my side. I don't think he was yeah, anywhere near definitely. as bat- low on it as I was. Um... Yeah, so, so the first thing was is that system shot... Like, immersive sims, if I had to identify like my favorite genre of video games in a broad sense, I would say 100% it's immersive sims. And System Shock is one of the first immersive sims ever made. Um, One of the Ultima games is technically considered the first one, but System Shock was one of the first ones to popularize it. Mm. And it was really interesting to play because I could see the historical seeds of so many aspects of the genre that i love to this day like 30 years later Mm. games are still using the things that system shock created now all that said it was a flawed game but sometimes those flaws make it all the more interesting so i really enjoyed playing it like from a historical perspective which isn't really what we do on the show but i still got value of from it from that perspective you know um, playing one of the one of the grandfathers of my favorite genres, but I also just really enjoyed the discussion. I, I like talking about immersive sims. I think they're like I, I think that systemically they're one of the more uh, interesting kind of video games to talk about. And having Nick on the show was was great as well. Yeah, so good... yeah, definitely the System Shock episode. I know you weren't high on the game itself, but I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion at least. Yeah, I. If we're talking about like the patterns in the kinds of episodes I like to record, um, I think the ones I enjoy talking about the most are usually the ones where we're both pretty high on the story because I think that one of the things we do fairly well on the show um, is to dissect and criticize uh, the story and the you know nitty gritty game mechanics of games. Right? I don't. You know, I don't think our discussions on graphics or sound are as interesting as these. So <laughs> I, I, you know, these are the episodes I tend to like the most. Um, and usually I find that when we disagree strongly, I think we lose a lot of nuance in each of our individual points because, you know, when one of us makes a point that the other person strongly disagrees in, they're less likely to jump into the, I guess, the nitty-gritty discussion of that point. Um, it's more of a, I guess, a high-level back-and-forth argument about why it's correct or wrong. So I mm. guess for me, the episodes that I enjoyed recording the most, um, the top three would be Thief 2, Diablo 1, and Archimedean Dynasty, because, uh, you know, in each of these, I think we kind of came... We bo- We were both pretty high on these games, um, and that, I think, led to the most interesting discussion. Talking about Archimedean Dynasty's story um, was really fun for me. And talking about Diablo and Thief's mechanics on a really, like, you know, low-level, fine-detail kind of axes is really fun. And that's the most fun I have on the show is just, you know, uh, gushing about little things that the game designers have put in their game. It's a good point. One of the things that you can do on a podcast that you can't don't necessarily get in a written review or even in like a looking at a articles or anything is you get into the nitty gritty. You get into the moment to moment small details of the experience, um, which you don't have time for in reviews a lot of the time. Yeah. But because we indulge ourselves by speaking for hours about these video <laughs> games, 
we can actually talk about these small things. And I agree with you that some of the best discussions we have arise from that. But yeah, I got to say, I, I'm very much about the arguments. <laughs> I, like, I like the difference in opinion. And I think that when we agree too much one another, it can become stale. You must have loved recording Crystalis and Lunar then. <laughs> I mean, I didn't love the games, but yeah, recording it was, was a very cathartic experience. Yeah. <laughs> I finally get to let all that anger go in one big go. So yeah, when we do agree, we, do, we can be a bit more calmer and rational about things. So it's got its upsides as well. All right, uh, next question, Jimmy. Well, it's your turn to pick, Patrick. Which one would you like to lead with? We're going to go with Cyan Storm, also known as Drew. He is the host of the um, At Will and Drew's Gaming Retrospective. They have a uh, weekly video game podcast that's very enjoyable to listen to. And he's asked us some excellent questions. So the one we're going to go with to begin with is, if you had veto powers, what game would you use it on? Both for the games you've played so far and for future games. So we'll talk about the um the games we've played so far. So James, if that's easy though, anybody who's listened to this to this show uh, knows that the game you'll pick would be Lunar, and the game that I'd pick would be System Shock, right? Uh, so for you, it's System Shock. Absolutely. Uh, I I have not enjoyed doing this show less uh, than we did that, like during the actual playing of that game. I was like, I was actually like yelling at the screen at points. I don't remember ever being like that angry at a game uh, that wasn't multiplayer. <laughs> it just, I found, I don't know what it was. It just rubbed me the absolute wrong way. I did not enjoy, you know, controlling it, playing it, looking at it, listening to it. Uh, even the story disappointed me immensely. So. I would never play that game again, um, and I'm, you know, even hesitant to play its sequel, which I hear is really good. Yeah, I'm afraid I do have to be boring and say Lunar Silver <laughs> Star Story. Like, see, the problem is, like, because I, I went through our entire game catalogue, and I was like, Crystalis, uh, Crystalis was close, but Crystalis at least had you know, somewhat decent boss fights, and it had, like, responsive controls. And- yeah. I mean, there are parts of the game that I hated, but there are other parts of the game that are just like... This is okay. Like, some of the... There were some bits that looked nice, too. Um, like, two screens. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other game I considered was, like, The Lost Vikings. But even then, Lost Vikings is it still at least an interesting concept. Like, it's got... L- Luna isn't just a horrific experience from start it's to finish. Also it's long. a boring one. Yeah. And it's so long. Yeah. Yeah, so unfortunately, it is Luna for me, although I did consider a couple of others. But yeah, that's if I had to go back in time and not play that game, I would take that opportunity in an instant. Yeah, definitely that. But I think what's more interesting is, uh, are there future games that you know, are on your mind to veto? So I thought about this long and hard, and I eventually settled on a game. It's, it's kind of a hard question, because you've got to think of all the games that you hate that we haven't played. Yeah. And I think that if I had a veto, I would use it on the Shenmue games. I don't know if you know oh, the Shenmue I do. games. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've never played a Shenmue game, but I've seen some reviews and I saw, you know, like the discussion of Shenmue 3. And it just seems like everything I hate about video games distilled into a package. It's like got grinding it's got waiting like you literally have to wait sometimes it's got awful voice acting it's tone deaf 
I can't understand people who can say anything positive about these games at all. And if you ever made me play one, that's probably the moment my fist goes through my monitor <laughs> and my computer's unavailable. For oh, a I have been looking for another game for us to play. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, what about you, Jimmy? Um, I can't really think of one. Like, I'd have to know that the game is actively bad for me to like veto it. The one that's kind of jumped into my head, and I'm kind of sheepish about saying this, is actually the original Deus Ex, because I was originally, like, that's a game that I think one day we'll do for the show, and I, like, always thought, I was always really positive about doing it for the show until we played System Shock, and realized that maybe immersive sims aren't quite for me, and that, you know, there's this, like, I guess it's a very very well respected game and it's more it's less the fact that i think i won't like it it's more that i'm worried about being disappointed i guess um because there isn't really a game that i'm just like super adverse to giving a go it's just when i think about playing it i'm really worried that i'll hate it and i don't want that to be the case so basically if you haven't heard me gush about it before deus ex the original one is one of my favorite games of all time it's one of my the most important games to me and like my development as a gamer like playing it for the first time was a real eye-opening experience and i've probably played it from start to finish like four times including a full stealth playthrough which is a terrible idea don't do it but that's how much i love this game James, I don't I don't think that it's possible for you to hate Deus Ex from what I know about you. If I had to identify like the one big change advancement from System Shock to Deus Ex, it's that you have diversity in play styles and diversities in ways in which you approach objectives. To me, the number one problem with System Shock is that Every problem was an enemy with a gun, and the way you solved every problem was peeking around the corner and shooting the edge of that enemy's hitbox. Deus Ex has far more sophisticated level design. It's got, you know, better RPG systems, so you can develop your characters in different ways. Uh, It's got a better story. Now, the story is incredibly cheesy, but I kind of secretly like it because of it. You know, the whole concept of every conspiracy theory you can think of being true simultaneously is just quite funny and it all all works together i'm kind of reluctant to do dsx because i'm so familiar with it like i could play play it you know from memory almost but i think that you would enjoy like this the improvements from the original system shock are so significant that i i don't think you can you can draw an ancestry, but it's it's so much more than than System Shock. Often. It's one of the games that you love to the bit to bits to the point where you think it kind of illegitimizes your review, right? Like I have these games, like I think if I was to, if we were to do FF10 for the show, I don't know if I'd enjoy that because I cannot be objective about that game, or I cannot recommend it to people because I just grew up with this game and it's so, I guess. Uh, ingrained influential yeah on yeah. the way that i view games uh it's really hard for me to step back from that and uh give a proper discussion on it so i i completely understand that i think i could do it um but the way i'd approach it is i'd kind of try to really actively take a step back and try and let let you lead the discussion because 
I'd want to hear what your experience was like and see if I can add bits and pieces to to flesh it out. I think that um, it, my honest opinion of that is that Deus Ex has been has been improved upon since its inception, but I think it took a very long time to get to that point. Mm. I think Prey is like a better version of Deus Ex in a lot of ways, but it took like you know years. 15 to yeah. 20 years to reach that point so for a long time deus ex i was like yeah deus ex is the best game ever made and i was thinking that even as late as like 2010 um but i don't think that anymore i still think it's very good but um i've had enough time from playing it that i i think i'd be okay but yeah we need to save that for episode 100 james the special episode hey you had a uh special episode for 50 you don't get a second one it's my <laughs> turn next i'd have no idea what i'd pick all right james next question so moving on um this is another question from our discord user vexus so thank you for one another one um do you have any video game or console purchasing regrets uh, so I don't have any console purchasing regrets. Uh, I've only bought a couple of consoles in my life, a PS2, a PS3, and a Switch. And uh, every single time, I've been pretty damn satisfied with them. I bought the PS2 and PS3 like a generation late. Yeah. And so by that time, they had huge game libraries, and uh, they both provided games that weren't available on PC. And similarly with the Switch, I think it's a fantastic piece of technology um, there are certain games on it that are just excellent, uh, like uh, Into the Breach. I'm a big fan of that on Switch. Um, but I do have one massive video game purchasing Ooh. regret that I upsets me to this day that I uh, that I fell for the hype. Juicy. And that is Duke Nukem Forever. So Duke Nukem 3D was probably my favorite game ever until i played deus ex i played that game so much Duke nukem 3d is it's so different from the other doom games because it tries to create realistic environments for you to kill the monsters in basically so the level design was phenomenal and the verticality of the level design and exploring the levels was incredible so i was super excited for the long the long, you know, wait, awaited sequel to what I thought was Duke Nukem 3D. And instead, you got this linear, drab, poor piece of shit video <laughs> game that I quit after three hours after spending, you know, $60 on it. And I've never been so disappointed and upset in my life. Duke Nukem 3D is a game we could do. I, I'd like to play that at some point. Um, I remember yep. having a go at that um, and quite enjoying it. Um like you, my video game purchasing regret also comes from this place of being hyped for a sequel and uh, being m immensely disappointed. Um, and that game is Dragon Age 2. <laughs> when I was on holiday with my family in England one year, I remember my mother buying me a copy of Dragon Age from a store and being very excited to play it when we got home to australia so i you know i had this copy of dragon age origins you know in my travel case for like two weeks before we got home and i just spent you know every night reading through the game manual and being super excited to play it and then when i got to play it it was a fun game so you know i had this really really fond memories of playing dragon age origins um and one of the things i really loved about it was that the game let you explore you know this vast world and you could go to all these different places like the elf forest and the dwarf mountain 
um, and you know the crazy wizard tower and you know you could just do so much stuff it was really fun and then the sequel Dragon Age 2 was set entirely in a city you know the whole thing's just a bit gray and brown and everything's different and the UI man I'd never really noticed visual design for UIs before but in Dragon Age 1, all the UI is all like medieval and, you know, your spell book is this book with these torn pages. And then Dragon Age 2's UI looks like fucking Windows 10 with all these, like, you know, <laughs> uh, modern, sleek rectangles and, you know, nothing's embellished with anything. It just looks so weird. Uh, it was so upsetting. I, I, that's definitely my biggest regret. I was very disappointed by that game. Never got to the end. Just... I think I, I think I remember snapping the disc at one point <laughs> uh, as a joke because I knew I would never install it again. Um, yeah. Other I've, than that, I've played um, a little bit of Dragon Age Origins. I never finished it, but I mean, I enjoyed it for the time I played it. It's just I, you know, it, you just fall out of some games sometimes. But yeah, I uh, I remember reading the discourse around uh, Dragon Age Two when it came out, and oh boy. <laughs> It was uh, it was yeah. very grim. It was I think in a lot of ways Dragon Age Two kind of signaled the beginning of the end for Bioware because Bioware yeah. was so well regarded as being like the greatest RPG game company ever, and then Dragon Age Two came out and it all started to go downhill. Yeah. So other than that, I have a very embarrassing. Um tale to admit about buying video game consoles because i do have a big regret on buying a video game console mm, so you've, you've told me about this before <laughs> yeah <laughs> so back in like i'm gonna say like 2011 2012 um kickstarter um came out for the first time and it was this big hype and everyone was like everything on kickstarter that you kickstart is going to be amazing and you know we know how that turned out it just nothing creates bigger disappointments than kickstarter right everyone knows this at this point um but you know i was you know younger and stupider it's 10 years ago now and i fell for the hype um and i bought myself an ouya <laughs> and it tell you know, everyone what it, an ouya is james uh, so an Ouya is an Android console. It's this tiny little cube. It's like, I don't know, um, five inches. Yeah, it's like a phone that you can play phone games on. And like I bought it and I plugged it in and the controller felt like shit. And the, you know, you could only buy phone games that were overpriced and there was nothing good on it and i think i used it as a paperweight and a doorstop at some point <laughs> um uh, yeah really really regret that one i was a uh, big stupid you can just you know play android games in an android emulator on your computer if you want to do that or on on your phone um yeah just absolute waste of money uh that was but uh you know lessons learned okay um next question jimmy i think it's your turn to ask no i just asked that one mate oh did you okay uh back yeah. to me then okay <laughs> um okay so we're gonna go back to uh we're gonna go to diddy wong and diddy wong asks pat is there a jrpg retro or not that's always been at the back of your, of your mind always wanting to play but never got to same question to james for fps so the the origin of this question is that I like complaining about JRPGs and James has complained 
about a couple of FPSs, although not nearly to the degree that I whinge about yeah, RPGs. Like, when I complain about FPSs, it's because you always pick them, and I'm like, I want there to be variety on this show, <laughs> and you'd pick so many that would be like, oh, I can't pick FPSs now because then, you know, the density will be too high. But I don't actually have a um a big bias against the genre um although i think patrick doesn't feel that way about jrpg <laughs> yeah correct so so but james <laughs> is there any fps in existence that you're keen to play that you've never actually played i don't think so because if there was uh like an fps that i just want to play i think i'd just play it um i don't really have one that i've been you know saving in the back of my mind although i always kind of i never actually played um call of duty 4 um Ah. and everyone always went on about it about how good it was um so i've always been kind of curious about that i guess um although my dislike of call of duty 1 maybe uh dampened that curiosity slightly it's really funny call of duty 4 i think if you played it, you would play it and you'd be like, what's all the hype about? Because Call of Duty was a game that kind of like distilled its formula into dynamite and then they copied it, you know, 12 times yeah, in a row. Yeah, it's like Seinfeld games. syndrome, right? Yeah, but I will say that uh, COD 4's story does feel very tight and they're kind of like, there are dual storylines. One follows the Americans and one follows the British SAS. And the Americans are all gung-ho going into the Middle East with guns blazing, but kind of blind. Whereas the SAS are kind of doing sneaky, dubious shit in the (laughs) background and actually solving the problems. So that kind of dichotomy is like really well executed. So it's, it's a tight story, but... In terms of, like, bombast, you'll just be like, it's just another Call of Duty game. It's just another Call of Duty, right? Yeah, I think that'll be the case, yeah. So, yeah, honestly, there isn't really a whole lot that uh, I haven't played that I just, you know, if I wanted to, I just would. What about you, Pat? If I had to nominate a JRPG that I'm, like, kind of curious about, it's definitely one of the Paper Mario games. So okay. I've heard so many good things about Paper Mario. People are, like, really high on it. They say the gameplay is kind of simplistic, but it also doesn't look as grindy. It looks kind of, like, simple and maybe a little repetitive, and that they're, like, insanely charming and entertaining and filled to the brim with jokes. Does that mean Mm. that, in reality, if I sat down to play it, I'd love it? Probably not. But if there's a JRPG that I would you know like to check out you know like to know more about like to give a go it's definitely yep. a paper mario game and i know that there are heaps of them so i wouldn't know which one to do uh yeah so apparently um all of the new ones have a very uh negative reaction from the the fans of the series they're quite a bit i guess different and dumbed down from what i've heard whereas the the first two specifically the one on gamecube i think people like love to bits okay. um so you know definitely be a game i'd like to pick i think the second one's a bit long maybe the first one too but mm. i wouldn't mind uh, trying to squeeze it in there at some point honestly i thought you were going to mention persona 5 you've brought that up a couple of times of having uh, a passing interest in what it's like mainly due to the visual style and stuff like that yeah so persona 5 was on my short list actually when i was considering this question i was considering uh, earthbound chrono trigger persona 5 
But the thing about Persona 5 is like... It's so long. <laughs> well, it's so long. And also, I just think that the fact it's so anime and that's kind yeah, of like... It is. Yeah, and I think that for a lot of people, that would be endearing, but it would never be endearing for me. It would be irritating from start to finish, and I would be sick of it immediately, and I cannot see in any world where I would like these characters or they would grow me. Although, one of them, I have to say, from what I've seen in YouTube videos, looks hilarious. Have you played Persona 5 games? Yeah, I've finished it. Yes. There, there, there's, there's this character, and listen, I, I haven't played it, I've just seen snippets. And he seems obsessed with painting or something, and you can go on <laughs> dates with him. Yeah. And he just seems—I don't know what his name. Who's that? Yusuke, you're talking about, yeah. He—he he just seems completely self-absorbed in like this super his super niche interests. And uh, yeah, I thought uh, I think like like that's the sort of stuff that I think. Well, maybe this game is all right and quite funny. But I think that the reality of playing the game would end up being too much for me. So Paper Mario's lighter touch might might end up being better. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I I I think you would uh, yeah get very uh, very bored of the writing very fast. Honestly, not the. Uh, strongest suit of that game i think some of the like the smaller stories it does really well uh particularly the very first story arc and one of the ones in the middle but i think the over mm. the overarching plot falls very flat and i think the character interaction is very paper thin outside of these two really good arcs so you know it's i think um the thing it does extremely well is the visual style and the snappiness and feeling of the combat um, but story-wise, and the UI. yeah, absolutely. That UI, it's incredible. Um, but otherwise, I agree. So, what's the next question? Actually, before we go into that, it's about time we had a music break. So, this is normally when we would uh, play the music from the game that we were playing for the week. But uh, obviously, because this is a mailbag episode, we don't have the music from the game. So instead, we thought we'd do something a bit fun, um, and we'll just pick some of our favorite video game music, and we'll use that as the break. Wait, you questions. don't listen to video game music. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, back in episode two, all the way back in episode two, uh, I didn't. Uh, but one of the fantastic things that this show and doing the show has done for me is that it's given me an appreciation of video game music and I've I now listen to video game music recreationally like I just enjoy listening to it and I greater understand the significance of it in underlying underlining um important moments like boss fights and just just in general so you're right James once upon a time I was like that but that man that Patrick is dead uh that Patrick is no more the um the track I wanted to highlight is from a game that I've not actually finished, uh, Bloodborne. Bloodborne is the only From Software game that I haven't played start to finish, mainly because I don't own a PS4, so I've never you know had an opportunity. But I've watched complete Let's Plays and I've read about the lore, and I I love I love the game. Um, but I think one thing Bloodborne does better than any of the other From Software games is its soundtrack. I think Bloodborne's soundtrack is phenomenal, uh, even better than Dark Souls 3, even better than uh, uh, Sekiro's. The one I've chosen is, of course, my favourite track, and it's Lawrence the First Vicar. It's just an absolutely haunting track, and uh, 
I love it to bits. That that track and the one for Ludwig are masterpieces. They're phenomenal. But I think Lawrence, the first victor, edges it out. So this is Lawrence the First Vicar from the Bloodborne soundtrack. was Lawrence the Vicar from the Bloodborne soundtrack. Uh, I actually also quite like it and the rest of Bloodborne's music. I think it is some of From's best. Um, so this next question comes from uh, one of our act- really active Discord users, Made a Mimo, who we get some great discussion out of. Um, and his question was, what was the worst game you've played outside the podcast? And um, I think that our answers for the previous question, which uh, game you regret playing, kind of comes from a place of disappointment rather than being, you know, on balance, the worst games we've played, at least for me. So did you have a game you hate more than Duke Nukem uh, Forever, Patrick? Um, sorry, let me think a bit, because uh, I actually, uh, I might be able to come up with another answer. So James, you start and I'll have a bit of a thing. What's the worst game you've ever played? So for me, so Dragon Age 2 is the game I hated buying the most because it represents such a big disappointment for me, but I don't think it's actively the worst game played. The worst game I've played, which I would kind of, you know, uh, talk about, you know, technically and how finished it is, how well everything works, is actually a game Patrick wrote an article about. Uh, quite a while ago now and that game is Daisy, which <laughs> i also regret buying uh and was an- so i bought Daisy on the hype that it was this weird game you know where you could run around for hours and then just die and have all these cool experiences um i bought the game played for about two hours didn't see a single player that entire time um, the zombies in that game did not attack me or attempt to attack me. I fell through the floor like three times. Um, <laughs> and I just, at the end of it, I was like, why am I playing this? This isn't a game. I'm just, this is like a walking simulator without the story. Um, and unfortunately, I'd played it for long enough that I couldn't refund it, which was disappointing. But, you know, it was an unfinished buggy mess that had no gameplay from what I could see. Uh, and absolutely no value. I just did not understand uh, why people were talking about this game. So so at what stage in its life cycle did you play the game, just out of interest? Uh, it would have been within within like a couple months of people talking about it, I feel like. Because um, I ran okay. around on this beach for so long picking up ammo and then, you know, I just closed the game. I didn't find another player Um Maybe I logged into a dead server or something. I don't know. So Daisy is, I think, one of the most fascinating games ever made. But it's more fascinating as a story and 
the way people conceptualize the video game than it is as a game in and of itself. Because when this game first released, it was it was like this very mysterious time because you would hear all these snippets and stories from, you know, YouTube videos and gaming journalists writing about it. And it was like discovering a completely new genre of video games. No one had any idea what the hell was going on. Um, you'd play with people and you'd yell friendly into your mic and you would team up with other random players doing you have no idea you kind of wander around and you just get into these dynamic gameplay experiences but the problem was that people were playing the game wrong uh and as soon as people figured out how to optimize playing the video game which was to shoot on site the game started to fall to pieces and it could no longer the as as you said james it was an unoptimized buggy mess which was worth tolerating (laughs) when it was an exciting new fresh sort of thing but once everyone was on the level of the kind of gaming experience it was it was revealed to be a very shit video game a terrible one still incredibly influential yeah i mean it definitely was uh but uh that bit you said about it being an incredibly shit video game oh i agree um i yeah. uh, have never seen it as anything else unfortunately and and that's that's a problem because basically it was the ignorance of the broader community that allowed it to be and appear to be so much more than it was because it was so new and fresh and exciting. Um, I've, I've, as James said, I wrote an article about this. I think the story of Daisy is is wonderful. And the the weeks I spent playing it when it had first been released, where I had to do registry edits to get it running, were absolutely magical. Um, I James, if you, I will say that if you wanted to give something like the Daisy experience another go, there's a game called Escape from Tarkov, which I think has taken a lot of what made the original daisy really enjoyable and kind of like distilled it into a working package okay sure um i mean the problem was you know i never saw anybody so i never really got either Mm. of those experiences you mentioned it just felt unfinished and really i don't even have a good grasp of what that experience was supposed to be so I don't know, to be honest. Um, did you have a game that you have thought of? Okay, I will say I'm cheating slightly. I don't know if this is the worst game I've ever played because, uh, you know, I've played it outside the podcast, of course, because the worst game I've ever played is Luna Silver Star Story, but unfortunately disqualified disqualified for the mm. question. But um, back in, I can't remember what year it was, it's probably something like, 2009 2010 there's this game release called brink b-r-i-n-k oh, i know this one yep yeah it, it was made by the people who made quake enemy territory i think it was it was a it was a class-based shooter and it was supposed to have like parkour elements and stuff like that right which which it did but the guns were terrible and the game was laggy and I remember being excited for this review and everyone was excited. All these reviewers were excited and then you played it and it was just a very dull and boring video game to play. The The guns were kind of all extremely weak yep. because the developers wanted there to be more 
duels between players instead of being able to kill enemies. And at this time, games like Apex uh, didn't exist and people... And honestly, I've always hated how, you know, bullet spongy enemies are in games like that. So I played Brink. It was atrocious. The game's community died out in the space of two weeks and it was condemned as a universal failure. So yeah, that game was just complete a complete blank, a complete failure when so many people were hyping it up as, you know, the next evolution to Counter-Strike. You know, I actually, I remember playing this online shooter for many years um, called Combat Arms. It's like a, I think it's like a Korean Nexon-owned um, FPS. Um, and that game was quite, you had a lot of health in that game, I remember. And I remember really enjoying those little duels you were talking about where you're like constantly ducking behind scenery and you have like time to get your bearing, I guess. And I don't know, I always kind of wanted to play another game like that. Um, but obviously Brink was not that game from uh, the sounds of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll just make one more comment on that idea. I think that the problem with... Uh, the problem with that tankiness uh, that is quite prevalent in a lot of multiplayer shooters today is that it completely eliminates any tension you might have from the first-person shooter experience. I mean, I'll always hold Counter-Strike up as the premier first-person shooter. Like, I love the game so much. I love watching it nowadays almost as much as I love playing it. And I think what Counter-Strike delivers is such a tense experience that just doesn't exist in any other video game. You go from absolute silence, everyone walking, and then as you round the corner, you have this sudden break of tension as people start firing, and it's over in an instant, and you transfer from these moments of tension beautifully. So, yeah, yeah I, I understand that people enjoy them, but I'll never, I'll never like them. Uh, more than the, what Counter-Strike does. Yeah, I, I'm i much more about uh, getting that adrenaline rush and having it go for as mm. long as possible, um, which I think a game like Doom Eternal is the perfect yes. example of a game like that, um, where you're engaged in these long, drawn-out encounters where, you know, messing up gets you killed, so you have to be constantly moving as fast as you can, ducking and weaving between gunfire and, you know, getting shots in where you can. That's the kind of... That's honestly the kind of gameplay I want from my shooters, which really uh, doesn't exist that much outside of Doom Eternal these days. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe maybe I would have liked Brink if it had been uh, implemented well, but, you know, we'll never know. Um, so moving on, next question, um, Patrick. Oh, is it my turn again? Okay. Uh, let's yeah. go to um, let's go to Drew again, Sirenstorm. Uh, he says, if you had the option to play the games we play for the podcast on original <laughs> hardware, would you? And if, if, and why or why not? Um, uh, this is funny. Drew always tells <laughs> us that um, he he when he listens to our show, he's often yelling at the radio like an old man. Um, because uh, one of the things we do on the show is that we approach older games from a modern lens, like it's the first time we've played them. Whereas I think Will and Drew's show is a much more, I guess, nostalgia-driven show in some ways. Like they're approaching these old games as people who played them growing up, and you know, really appreciate and revere them. Yeah, I'll, I'll also say it's more nuanced to that. It's more that they consider the historical context in which these games were released. Yeah, it's not it's not pure nostalgia. It's just also 
you know, an appreciation for the historic limitations. Like one of the one of the things we never really bring to light is the fact that when people were working on the Super Nintendo, they were super limited in terms of uh, space on the cartridge. Mm. So there was a lot less they could do with music and visuals and you know, they had to be very creative in how they did all this stuff. On the show, we don't give a shit about this, that, whereas Will and Drew probably are more appreciative of those creative uh, drives under limitations. So this question's interesting because for me, I think that... Because a lot of times we play games on this show, the vast majority of times we emulate, right? Mm. We play on our, you know, modern PCs, you know, uh, playing these games with, you know, uh, extra settings that they couldn't have run on um, back on the original hardware because I think that for a lot of people going back for these games for the first time uh, it's a going to be a more convenient to play an emulated version of the game and b a lot of the time it's just going to run better um, although you do lose a lot of that I guess nostalgia and historical reverence from playing on the original hardware so for me for the show specifically I think it would be interesting for one person to play emulated games and one person to play on the original hardware. I'd have no problem, um, you know, sitting down and playing on the old hardware because there are going to be some people who specifically want to do this. So, you know, there's value in that for those listeners. Um, but personally, for me, I just value the convenience so much of just being able to, you know, sit down on my computer and have things run out of the box. Um uh, and you know be able to choose whatever controller i feel like be that my ps4 controller or my old you know 360 controller that i also like using sometimes um have the controls fully mappable it's just so convenient yeah so it's an interesting question i mean the short answer is no but so i think that when it comes to running the video game, I'd always want to run it on my PC because having access to save states is just incredibly useful. Um, there are a lot of these games where, you know, where just being able to plonk save states down makes it far more reasonable to get through things. That's a good point, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that a lot of old games are really bad with their save systems and checkpointing, and this kind of allows you to... Uh, you know, bypass that frustration and even improve the experience. And I think uh, we often include this in our reviews. Like, if it has a bad checkpoint system, you can entirely ignore that negative, right? If you have save states. And I think you should, um, mostly. I, I think that, you know, you can cheapen the experience by overusing save states but as long as you exercise like some, doing that yeah as long as you can exercise some self-control generally by you know doing a single save state at the start of each level um it's it's generally going to be fine like when we played beautiful joe i would create save states before bosses so i could learn the bosses and then once i had them down pat i would do the level from scratch again stuff like that i i don't have a problem with um i will say that I would like to have the option to at least try the original controller for a lot of these console games. Um, there are games like Super Mario that I think I, I, I'd want to try on a Super Nintendo controller. And um, the big one is Police Noughts. Uh, Police Noughts had an optional light gun plug-in yes. for its yes. sections where you have to be, you know, shooting your gun. And I think having access to a light gun for those bits would have actually made them really fun instead of incredibly frustrating and annoying. 
So <laughs> yeah. I think when it comes to what I'm running the game on, it'll always be PC. But if I had like a box that had every video game controller in history, I would love to be able to just plug it in and at least try it and maybe even continue playing if it clicks with me. Because those sometimes the original controls on the original controller are going to deliver the best experience. And absolutely next time we play a game from the Nintendo 64, I'm going to make you play on the original hardware because I know that you'd love that controller. Yeah, I forgot to mention that, but um, if we ever do uh, an FPS on a console, I am not playing with the controller, full stop. And if you don't like that, Drew... You can get stuff because <laughs> I'm using a mouse and keyboard for my FPS games. Uh, Full stop. Uh, just trivializing I'm happy to these entertain. console <laughs> I'm happy to entertain it for any other games, but not first person. Don't worry, Drew. I also think he's a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, alrighty. So moving on again. Um, this one comes from Hexity, who we also know in real life. Um, which game did you play that felt the most dated and why? So I guess in terms of how they controlled or graphically dated or, you know, just the general design of the game. Patrick, what, what did you have for this one? So I browsed through. I think the game that feels the most dated is unsurprisingly the oldest game we played this season, and it's the original Castlevania. I think um, there are a few things that stand out to make the experience feel dated. Uh, the first one is the point system. It's got a point system. The points don't do anything, but it's it's just there, you know, which is obviously a relic of these video games, you know, kind of moving away from arcade sort of systems to home systems. But the bigger thing is the way that the controls and axes of movement didn't really match up with the challenges that were presented to you. Mm. Um, Castlevania has very limited ways to control your character. Um, You jump up and down, you jump in a specific arc, and um, when you move off a platform, you don't have any momentum. You just drop like a rock. But you're constantly being assaulted by off-screen enemies, and particularly a lot of the boss battles, if you don't cheese them with holy water, just put you in positions where... It feels basically impossible to avoid taking damage a lot of the time. And I say that with the understanding that there are people who are good enough at this game that they can go through without taking damage. I accept that. But for mere mortals like myself, it just feels clunky and it feels bad when you take damage. And I would contrast that to something like Hollow Knight. And Hollow Knight is a game that I've played a lot and loved to pieces, but it's a game where... I would say that your moveset and abilities and control match the challenges in front of you, except for perhaps the absolute optional late game challenge, the absolute radiance, which uh, which deliberately stimmies <laughs> your the ways in which you can move. Um, but you know that's like an ultra late game challenge that is you know created for a specific purpose. So yeah, Castlevania the. I just wish you had better control over your character because I think if you did, it would be a lot more fun. And I think that that's what you see in um, in the successes to Castlevania throughout the years. Yeah, I also had that on my short list, but ultimately the game that I settled on was uh, The Lost Vikings um, by Blizzard. 
Um, the thing that really stood out about this game was its lack of entire lack of checkpointing. Um, the fact that its save system used like a level skip code instead of having, you know, like a dedicated save slot. So you had to write that down on a piece of paper or look it up every time you wanted to play the game again. Um, the fact that it was filled with these like really unforgiving insta-kill kind of deaths uh, that resulted in a game state where you could no longer win but didn't like end the game and send you back to the start like you could just be wandering around thinking maybe I can still finish the game even though I've died on one character. No, it doesn't care about that. It didn't have anything sophisticated like, you know, proper checkpointing or even, you know, failure state detection. Um, and it just kind of felt clunky to control as well. I actually really liked the underlying concept of that game, but I think the execution is extremely dated by today's standards. Particularly moving items between characters, it took me, it <laughs> oh took my me God. so long to figure it out. <laughs> and when I figured it out, I forgot and had to learn again. And yeah, the, I agree. It's weird. In some ways, that game is so polished. Like I, the the graphics and everything... Um, are beautiful and i think that like the puzzles themselves are really refined and well designed but yeah there are so many outdated uh difficult you know artificial difficulty sort of stuff in yeah, there that is yeah. that is very unlike the blizzard of today <laughs> you know blizzard yeah. uh blizzard began by making brutally difficult games before uh tapering off a little bit as time went on i mean no now blizzard games are always difficult warcraft 3 is actually a fairly challenging rts but um yeah certainly um certainly that was a difficulty that was more earned yeah definitely agree with that one um speaking of castlevania i'm going to jump in and answer this question as i ask it because uh it's very related so this question comes from user vexus again and it was what ineligible games for the podcast would you like to force the other person to play and if i was a particularly malicious sort of person i'd say <laughs> luna 2 for patrick um however <laughs> The, the real answer is that I actually would like to force Patrick to play uh, Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2, which is a, you know, an OG Castlevania clone that I think does the formula extremely well to the point where it like, it's obviously inspired by Castlevania 1 and those style of games, but it pushes the formula to such lengths and with such good level design and interesting character abilities um, that I think having played Castlevania 1, I think Patrick could really enjoy it um, to see just how far the genre has progressed since then, because I don't think you've played like a Castlevania, an, a classic Vania style game other than that, right? Uh, no. I, I mean, yeah. once again, all, I've played lots of Metroidvanias at this point, but they're really s sequels to Castlevania Symphony mm. of the Night, not the yeah. original more. You know, I played a bit of Shovel Knight. I know it's not Castlevania, but I've kind of always bounced off those more classic restrained uh fighty platformery sort of games but yeah. what you've said sounds intriguing i i don't think i'd hate to do it the main i guess thing that you'll notice immediately um is that your characters have very restrictive attacks like how in castlevania simon has this whip that attacks exactly like in front of him and in a little line and you kind of have to like uh, attack enemies with this in mind by you know jumping properly or spacing properly 
So you control four characters at the same time and you can swap between them instantly. Um, and they all each have their own strengths and weaknesses and you need to use them to A, navigate through the level because they each have their own unique platforming gimmicks that you need to like mix together in cool ways. But they can also all... Uh, interact with the level really interesting like for example you have a guy who has a gun um, which shoots horizontally infinitely like it covers the whole screen and is quite powerful but it has a really long wind up and uh, kind of end lag so you can only really use it uh, when you're safe and if something, yeah and if something rushes you you're kind of screwed Whereas like Simon, like the character that just has the you know regular sword is much faster, um, and they each have their own unique items that they can find in the world too. It's really interesting. Um, so it's trying but good. Yeah, I, I'd kind of put it that way. Um, one of the characters is like your healer, um, and she doesn't have much health, but she's strong in combat, and that kind of gives you this interesting risk reward because when a character dies. Um, you go back to the last checkpoint with all your characters except that one and you know eventually you lose all your characters and have to start again um, from the last checkpoint without a health but mm. if you lose your healer it's particularly problematic for you but she's so good in combat that you still want to use her um, you know there's all sorts of little stuff like that I think you'd really enjoy it no I mean I gotta say I don't think I'd mind giving it a try um, mm. of course the problem is always one of time but uh, time. yeah yeah but uh, may maybe maybe for a special so my game that I'd make James play is one that he wouldn't enjoy but I wouldn't be doing it for <laughs> my sadistic enjoyment I'd be doing it for a very good reason which is that uh -huh. I think this is one of the best games ever made in its genre. And that game is Steven Sausage Roll. Oh my god. <laughs> See, one of the things about this podcast is James and I both like puzzle games, but it's quite interesting. There aren't actually many good puzzle games that are eligible for the podcast at all. A, a lot of the things that you'd think of as puzzle games are more you know, point-and-click adventure games, which fucking suck on the whole. But when I think <laughs> That's of, like, your puzzle games, they're mostly, they're mostly newer titles. And I think Steven Sausage Roll is an incredible masterpiece of game design. It's um in the genre of Soko Barn, which is basically boils down to block-pushing, but uh, it does it in a very particular way. You're a man with a with a skewer, and you have to get sausages and grill them on both sides. And uh, <laughs> the game escalates in challenge dramatically. It it starts challenging you straight away. There are no easy puzzles in this game. From the very first puzzle, you're actually having to use your brain. And over the course of the game, which is like a hundred puzzles, almost every single one of those puzzles challenges you to think outside the box in some way shape or form all while using an incredible simple and refined control scheme yeah it is odd that there haven't been that many puzzle games to choose from i'd really like somebody to suggest a good one um, my favorite puzzle games of recent years has definitely been uh, barber is you i think that is an absolutely mm. brilliant title with a so genius hard. underlying concept and some you know really fun and creative um solutions to its problems highly recommend if you like puzzle games um but yeah 
Steven's Sausage Roll is one that I felt like I was brute forcing when I played, you know, maybe three or four levels of it. Like, I felt like I was just trying everything until I got lucky and it worked. Maybe I was not, uh, you know, trying as hard as I could because the game looks like uh, dog shit to be, <laughs> to be uh, you won't even argue against that right um, well it looks, I, it looks like what it looks like Minecraft but it, worse it looks, it looks like a fever dream um but it, I mean at least the visuals don't get in the um I guess in the way of the solving of the puzzles yeah. I can't, like listen I can understand not liking the visuals I'm not going to defend the visuals but one, I'm kind of like day, in love with the, when I with have the whole time thing. I'll give it a go so yeah it's just so I really don't want to spoil it except to say that the game has one brilliant moment that will blow your socks off but it comes you know you have to solve a lot of puzzles before you get there and there are some crazy difficulty spikes it just dumps on you and it's like good luck the game costs $40 on Steam and it looks yeah. like some it looks like some shitty $2 game someone made in their basement it's such a hard sell. I can't think of any game that's harder to convince people to try, but I really do think it's one of the best puzzle games okay. ever made. What about like um, E.T. or Superman 64? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. I, I mean, if you like puzzle games, if you love puzzle games, you owe it to yourself to give it a try because of how... It, it, how sophisticated and refined it is. I, it does so much with so little highly recommend and i i wish we could play it for the show james yeah uh one day we'll do it as a special episode maybe on episode 200 <laughs> um okay so um so, i've got a question now so yep. this question is from ben so ben asks uh if you were in a situation where you made a you know a deal with someone and that deal was if I play a video game from start to finish, will you finish another video game? And that person agrees to that deal. Do you think the honorable thing for them to do is to then play that video game? Or should they renege on the bargain and live a life of shame? Um, I think that they should renege on that bargain and live a life of shame. But I wouldn't know because Ben and I made that deal. Um, and I finished, I finished um, Baldur's Gate too like um you get out of this like wizard's lair or something and then you go to this city and then the game just ends you know um it was only like two hours longer so i don't know why he's so upset about this yeah he had to uh this is from ben also known as do boulders gate 2 cowards <laughs> he pays no heed to the fact that boulders gate 2 was like an 80 hour game and continues to demand that we play it he thought he'd found a good loophole because uh, he made it an agreement with James that if he played Final Fantasy X, that James would play Baldur's Gate 2. And, oh, I don't know, six months later, he's yet to get past the two-hour mark. But, hey, uh, I beat the tutorial. And, you know, I was play I was actually... This will trigger a few people. I, I actually, like... I was going to play it on my PC, but I thought because Ben played FF10 on the, in the lounge, because he, he's one of my roommates... Um, um, and I watched the whole playthrough because I love the nostalgia hit. Um, that it would only be fair if I made him watch my playthrough of Baldur's Gate 2. So I bought the PS4 copy and played it on controller, which honestly worked better than I was expecting. However, is one of the uh, one of the reasons I've been avoiding going back to it. To be honest, inventory uh, management in that game with a controller is a fucking nightmare. 
Yeah. Um, but oh. I do intend to one day get back to playing that game. Yeah, I have heard that the um the, the console adaptations, like all the changes they made were actually really intelligent. Um, so playing it is actually, for the most part, completely fine, with the exception of inventory management, of course. Um, it's, always, it's always an issue because inventory management on P- in PC games is just, like, so easy. You have a big grid in front of you, and you can click and drag things from the grid, and you can see your entire inventory at once, and you can easily click between tabs mm. to act as mm. filters, and it's by far, if you're playing on PC, it is the only way to do inventory systems. But with the advent of console games, you know, exploding, inventories have kind of morphed away from that model to something far more controller-friendly. But every time I lose the ability to access, to clearly see everything at once, I want to rip my hair out. Yeah. I remember <laughs> when I first saw the Skyrim inventory, I wanted to cry. It's just... The worst thing ever. Ugh, I never remember that upset. being that bad. Um, it really I, is. I didn't like Skyrim, but I don't. I never was upset by the inventory, although I did play it on PC, so I don't know. But in short, to answer Ben's questions, I think people should absolutely renege on their deals. Like it's just, <laughs> you're losing free real estate if you don't do it. It's the it's the value option. Um, so to continue. Um, I'm going to hit back at you uh, with another Ben question, because mm-hmm. obviously Ben can't ask serious questions to save his life. Um, <laughs> how many more JRPGs can the podcast survive? Can you can you give us an exact number on this, Patrick? Maybe I an have hour's to say, or... <laughs> like, you think this is a joke question, but it absolutely <laughs> is not. So I've thought about this, because Ben asked this quite a long time ago, and I think what it boils down to is, what what JRPG are we doing? Because if you suggest another JRPG that is like Lunar Silver Star Story, I do not know if I'll be able to complete it. Like, in, in all honesty, that was the worst game ever. However, James, if you can pick reasonable JRPGs, I think I can stomach continuing to do But what, what, the- what can... What counts as a reasonable JRPG in your mind? Like, Pokemon, would that be okay? um it's basically um, this so it, i mean a good question like i i mean it, it, i'm defining it very vaguely i think if i wasn't a, you know if i hadn't played a lot of pokemon in my life pokemon would be horrendous and i'd hate it, it but at least pokemon has, really well, okay I, well when you think about the challenge that pokemon presents you're just kind of rolling your face through the game right you're just I I know that the modern games are a bit more complicated than that, but uh, they're generally very, very uh, easy to get through, right? Yes, yeah. Um, but at least Pokemon has diversity in how you approach the experience, like crafting, yes. choosing and crafting a team, even if it ultimately doesn't matter, is still enjoyable and watching that team grow and everything is cool. If I had to define the number one thing i want from a jrpg i guess that the the thing that made me upset other than about to not luna, play it of course <laughs> well the thing that made me upset with luna more than anything else is how every battle was the same from start yeah. to finish like it was always the same you weren't it's a turn-based game so there's no reflexes of any kinds required the only way you engage your brain w- with this game is in terms of 
uh, what decision? What's my decision-making process when it comes to approaching these fights? Uh, there was no decision-making process. You just used the same attacks and abilities for hours and like literally th- thousands of times, thousands of times. So if you can pick a JRPG where I am tactically challenged in my approach to it, I think I can probably put up with everything else surrounding it. If if I have to think about what the best you know about who to attack with what spell to use where to position my guys if i have to actually engage my brain in these repetitive combat things because there's always going to be repetitive combat i'm going to mind it a lot less and i'll probably get through it yeah i think if i do pick one next it's probably going to be between like earthbound or chrono trigger um probably going to have to play it safe from treading on a treading on thin ice <laughs> with these picks here <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll you found show. stuff to enjoy about Vagrant Story when we played it, even though its combat system is probably overall a bit of a mess. Um, still much more engaging than Luna was. Like I said, at the end of Luna Silver Star Story, I was looking back at Vagrant Story nostalgically. I was like, <laughs> uh, I wish, I wish I was playing Vagrant Story because you can, you can, crit- I. You can, and I do criticize the overwhelming clunkiness of the complexity of the systems there that aren't presenting much depth. But you did have to engage your brain. Like each and every boss fight, you were analyzing and choosing, you know, which spells to use, which body parts to attack. Uh, You had to learn the rhythms for the different weapon types. You had to, you know, line up your... You know, there was stuff going on that was engaging you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as... Honestly, as much as I hate to admit it, if you can find a game that's at least as good as Vagrant Story, I can probably put up with playing that. Many more in Patrick's future. <laughs> All right, so moving on from uh, Ben's uh, meme questions, um, let's have a much more serious question, which is which is from another user from our Discord, um, Axelon. Why have you not done earth defense force yet um and the answer is fuck spiders let's move on to the next question (laughs) so for me um the first the first answer is i didn't actually really know much about this game i've seen bruno talk about before but it's not really a game that's on my radar so i went and did my due diligence and i watched some gameplay footage of it uh the first couple of edfs look shit i'm sorry bruno but they kind of look incredibly repetitive uh where you're just kind of endlessly shoot like holding down your trigger shooting your gun at these giant creatures it looks like the kind of game that you know might be fun for an hour or two or might be fun to play co-op with your buddies but those early earth defense force games i after an hour or two i can imagine me just completely zoning out and being bored out of my brain um i will say i watched some footage of one of the newer ones i watched a bit of number four and five and it seemed way more interesting like you were in these semi-mech suits with jetpacks and there was more weapon diversity and the movements seemed improved so it's possible the newer earth defense forces greatly improved on the formula but on face value looking at those early games i think don't think i would enjoy Mm, them very much mm. Um, yeah, one of my roommates actually played one of the recent ones recently. I didn't join him and the rest of our friends in playing it due to uh, fuck spiders, 
But um, they all really loved it, and they thought sort of it was a great time. They said there were like hundreds of weapons to use, and like all sorts of weird stuff happening. So, if I could get past my arachnophobia, which was uh, sorely challenged by the Dark Messiah episode, um, then uh, you know, wouldn't mind giving it a go either. For the record, I, I know we said on the episode, but how the fuck are the spiders in? a 2004 game or whenever that game released so scary they are easily the scariest of any game i've played like most of the time easily most of the time i'm like they're just video game spiders i don't care but in that game they made my skin crawl dude i was like i was like looking at my keyboard sprinting through the cave to get out of that shit um really did i tell you i did a sequence break to avoid one of the caves no it took me like 10 yeah there's a bit where you you can you can kind of see the next like you're up on the side of a mountain yeah and you can see the next wooden shack and if you just jump down directly to it you you die like it gives you fall damage because you're not meant to go down that way yeah but i figured out a weird rope arrow and i kind of surfed up the side of a cliff a bit and landed <laughs> on the rope arrow and i was able to and i did that all because i didn't want to go back into the cave with the spiders yeah so i just yeah. completely and then my save broke and i had to reload again but you know i tried yeah the game had this like romance system where you could choose one of the two characters and my choice was entirely because one of the choices involved saving one of them from this spider queen i was like fuck that you're dead bitch <laughs> <laughs> not worth it's like, it no 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 all right patrick i think it's time for a second music break we've been going on for a little while now um i guess we'll continue the trend of you uh picking random video game tracks that you've uh come across over the past <laughs> few months uh what did you have in mind for us next james i feel spoiled that you let me pick two tracks and i'm not gonna let you down Really, uh, honestly, we're recording this post the episode because we forgot to do it, and I just can't be bothered, Patrick, so <laughs> hey, <laughs> right on any, any reason you're not being bothered, I still feel spoiled. I've never got to pick two ever, so <laughs> excellent. So this one is another one I've stumbled across in my video game music listening journey. It's from a game I pro- will probably hate if I ever play it, uh, Final Fantasy XV, and it's called Apocalyptus Noctus Dramatic. I believe it's of one of the final, final boss fights in the game. But oh my god. I mean, I don't even know what the moment that this this music is meant to underlie. But oh, it's just so epic in the way the choirs overlap one another. It's a truly masterful piece of orchestral music. So Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 15 OST Apollo... Apocalypsis Noctis Dramatic. Enjoy.
that was some music from Final Fantasy 15, which I'm not even going to try to say, um, but it was quite good, and I do, uh, I do agree with uh, with Patrick's enjoyment of it. I guess. Yes, you admitted that I have good taste in video game music. Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, well, I will admit that it's improved from not non-existent, <laughs> but I guess it is what it is, Patrick. <laughs> anyway, to go back to uh, our usual programming, we have another question. Okay, so now that we've got all these shitty uh, non-real questions out of the way, it's time to get to the real question. What's your favourite sandwich? This is the most important question of the episode. So my favourite sandwich is one from a shop quite close to my house. Um, Patrick has been there with me a couple of times. Um, and my favourite sandwich is a salami pesto and Swiss cheese on Turkish bread, which mm. I think is absolutely delicious. Salami uh, and pesto being some of uh, the foods I love the most. Um, and it all just kind of like works together really well to make a uh, really enjoyable, wholesome and filling meal. You know, that is an excellent one. Um... I'm going to be quite boring. I think that my favorite sandwich ever is a BLT on Turkish. And I'll specify that I like it with cheese. So it's like a BLCT, I guess. Uh, and it's best enjoyed as, with lunch, as a lunch sort of thing, as opposed to a breakfast thing. You want lots of bacon, uh, a little bit of lettuce, a little bit of tomato. But really, you need heaps of bacon. That bacon needs to be nice and crispy. And the Turkish roll needs to be well toasted. It can't be like bread. It needs to be nice and warm. So the cheese melts over everything. And uh, I had a BLT down in Tasmania, which is down uh, in the south part of Australia. across across. It's an island, the southern tip of Australia. And it's one of the best sandwiches I've had in my life. I don't remember the name of the restaurant or anything. But I uh, yeah I gotta go for the classic BLT. Yeah, I love I love when uh, mayo and tomato are used together in food. Um, I think that something that makes Hungry Jacks, uh, which is like the Australian <laughs> equivalent King. of Burger King, yeah, uh, better than McDonald's is that all their burgers use a lot of tomato and mayo in them, as opposed to just you know uh, drowning them in grease. Um, maybe it's a bit different over in America, but here the burgers are quite tasty. Would you say the burgers are better at Hungry Jacks, James? Yes. We're, we're would, at, this is a Hungry Jacks podcast now. <laughs> Hungry Jacks podcast. <laughs> well, uh, for the next 52 weeks, we'll be eating Hungry Jacks every meal for every day. And while, uh, we'll be reviewing while we podcast. <laughs> if, if you hear us chewing food, it's Hungry Jacks. It's Hungry uh, Jacks. Uh, do I have any more questions left, Jimmy? Yeah, we've got we've got two questions left. So yeah. I want to go I'll leave the best question, my favorite question for last. Um and we'll go for the next one which is from Powerbjorn, one of our other Discord users. Thank you for joining and asking this question. Uh which games would you call your guilty pleasures? So uh I thought about this and I think ultimately the game that's my biggest guilty pleasure is definitely um counter-strike uh for a while it was valorant uh but when they changed the range at which you can queue with people you can only queue with people within a small rank uh i was unable to play with any of my friends anymore so i pretty much because you're too bad sorry (laughs) yeah well good enough to play yeah yeah that's it because i'm not good enough (laughs) yeah yeah it basically (laughs) killed our valorant group overnight there were like 12 of us that all played together and just boom 
you know, over the course of a week, we just all stopped playing. But, you know, if if there's one, you know, video game that I still play with friends, that I still play to blow off steam, it's Counter-Strike. And I, uh, I've i played that game a lot over the course of my life, and I still love playing it to this day. Is a relaxing pleasure game a guilty pleasure game, though? I don't even know how to answer this question. I don't have any games I feel guilty when I play. Um, I guess maybe Dota might be that guilty pleasure game because I could always be doing something more productive. I'm up to like, what, like 6,000 hours in that now. Um, but you know, I, every time I play it, I have fun. So that's all I want out of a video game, right? Yeah, yes. I, I guess I view guilty pleasure as just like, uh, you know, I could be spending my time doing something actually productive mm. and instead I'm playing a game I've played thousands of hours for. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. It's it's nothing to be truly guilty about. But uh, any time I, uh, I play Counter-Strike, it's purely for, for relaxation. You know, there's, there's a lot of games I play and I feel like I'm learning something about video games, you know, because I'm trying something new or trying something mm. challenging. Counter-Strike is just literally... I need I need some time to myself. I need to have some fun. Yeah, it's it's weird that Dota's that game for me because it's such a like uh I guess intense game to play. Like it's not really relaxing per se. It's more of a I guess in my regular line of work, which is mostly doing a lot of software support, I feel like I spend my whole time talking to people who don't really know what they're doing with computers. And so I kind of have to turn my brain off and tell people how to, you know, use the start menu and turn computers off and on again to fix them. It's like when I get home, like, like I spent my whole day feeling like Patrick did when playing Lunar Silver Star Story. It's <laughs> like I want something to engage me. Uh, so I guess that kind of high intensity style game is what I find most relaxing and pleasurable after you know being stuck at work all day so dota 2 definitely my answer here okay so time for the final question uh which is also from drew um what do you consider the golden age of gaming and why okay so this is one i've got kind of two answers to but the first answer is um roughly around when games were getting more sophisticated but before the internet was as prevalent as it is today and you could have those like water cooler style conversations with people where games were weird and mysterious and like you and friends down the street figured out like all these weird things that nobody else knew about and you know everyone's dad worked at nintendo and that kind of thing <laughs> um I, I really liked that period of time now i think a lot of the mystique um, has disappeared with the rise of the internet, with everything being so readily available for you to search. Um, one of the things that, that really attracted me to Dota originally, funnily enough, was the fact that it was such a wild west of a game to begin with, you know. Nobody knew what they were doing in this damn thing. And nowadays things get uh, figured out quite quickly. Um, and you don't get those like long periods of, you know, creativity that are possible when things are... Uh, I guess a little less solved um, as readily as they are today. Yeah, so so do you have a specific time period in mind? I guess that would be like late 90s, early 2000s. Late 90s, yeah, I guess. 1998 had so many good games like Ocarina of Time, Metal Gear Solid 1, stuff like that. So I guess around 98 would be probably 
my pick for my first answer. What about you, Pat? So I've picked a similar time period, but for slightly different reasons, because I would say that, you know, growing up, I was always a PC gamer. And to me, the glorious rise of PC gaming is roughly from about, you know, 96 to 2004, that kind of period, where you saw all of these incredible PC games rise to the you know rise to the top um games like uh real time strategy games really big in this period you saw all the red alert games and warcraft 3 um the immersive sims genre as i said system shock 2 deus ex uh the thief games um even games that i haven't played a lot of like one of one of the ones that i do want to one day actually properly investigate is um morrowind elder scrolls morrowind mm. I've played a lot of Oblivion and Skyrim, like so much Oblivion and Skyrim, but Morrowind was always, you know, just, I just missed out on that one. Yeah, I think you'll hate that game. Maybe, like I, I, I might, I might hate it, but if I've played, I mean, if I've played as much Oblivion and Skyrim as I've had, I can probably put up with the notoriously shitty combat. Yeah, so, I mean, when you hit with your sword, it rolls a dice and sometimes you just miss, yeah. so it feels really bad. Well, I've heard um, it starts off think... bad, right? And then it gradually gets better yeah, when you become... it gets better. Yeah, when you reach a sufficient power strong. level, yeah? yeah? Yeah, I mean, the world's incredible and the storytelling is awesome too, so you'll probably like that aspect of it, I think. And um, the final thing is FPS games, of course, you know, Half-Life, Counter-Strike, etc., <laughs> etc. Et so... Um, for me, that's that's one of the two ages that I would define as the golden age. I know it's not the only golden age, but for for PC gaming and for what PC gaming means to me, that was the glorious period that I think consoles kind of killed in a lot of ways as they rose through the late 2000s and the early 2010s uh so one thing that i really didn't like about gaming on pc um growing up as a kid was that i multiple times i would buy this brand new game uh and my computer would just be unable to run it mm. and maybe that was the case of our computer not being that great but you know i felt like i think that games today are more you know, you can pump them up really high, but I think there are a lot of titles that will run on toasters uh, if you want to if you want to do that. Whereas, like, I remember buying Oblivion for the first time. Like, oh, I was yeah. reading about it in gaming magazines, and you know, put it in my computer, and my computer would just crash. Yep. It was awful. I had to return it. Um, you know, that that kind of experience happened to me a lot as a kid. Oblivion had um, the worst so... optimization. You've actually just reminded me how bad it was. Yeah. yeah, I think I think I had to upgrade my PC. The other one was um was Crisis. Crisis famously would, you know, not run even on like the absolute you know, geared out rigs. But I remember that game mm. looked incredible when it came out. Like I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw Crisis. <laughs> the, the first time it happened um, was actually the PC version of the game Harry Potter and the Philosopher's <laughs> Stone. I played that. Which my grim which my grandparents had bought me. I actually thought the PC games were really fun. They had a lot of when, exploration. When were you in the Harry them. Potter games, James? I played that when I was a kid. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I mean, played the first uh, three. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I remember one of them has gnome tossing. You have to hit the targets. Yeah, yes. it does. You have to hit the targets. <laughs> yeah, I remember it being quite enjoyable. Um, I'd be I'd be happy to play them again. I remember um. In the first game, there's this spell Flipendo that your character learns. And when I was a kid, 
we didn't have headphones to play our PC games with. We had like physical speakers that we'd turn up. <laughs> and my dad and my mother like would hear me playing this game and they were convinced that Harry was shouting Nintendo. <laughs> um, it would always just, it was, they were just like, how, what does Nintendo have to do with Harry Potter? Um, I remember that very fondly. I had, um, I had a similar thing in, um, in Red Alert, uh, the first one, your ore refinery only had limited space to store your minerals. So you had to build these yeah. grain silos and they would um they would continue to store your your uh you know, your additional materials and you had to keep building them if you mm. started banking. And if you didn't have enough, uh the the lady, the announcer would say silos needed. And my mum would overhear it and she'd say, silence needed whenever, in the same tone of voice, whenever we were, you know, she wanted us to shut up. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, Man, that would have not shut you up. That would have made work. you uh, I laugh, made you, made so, you laugh. So, did yeah. you say there was a second golden age of gaming? That you yes. So, yeah. So, I think Drew will be raising his fist at this one, I hope. But um, I actually think this one's a bit cheating. But I think that... Uh, as time goes on, I think the most recent point in history is always the best time to be, you know, someone who plays a lot of games because all those great games, you know, you can still play them, right? And you can always play them on newer and better hardware. You know, especially today, I think it's never been easier to, like, have a large collection of games neatly organized digitally on all your platforms. Uh, you can get all those games and still play them. Uh, you know, you've got so many options on how to play them these days. Um, I think that... A lot of predatory DLC practices that we saw a lot of in the late 2010s are starting to, you know, you know, people are starting to take note and starting to crack down on that kind of bullshit. You know, there are so many live service games that you can play for free and have thousands of hours of content without spending a dollar. Games that are constantly updated. Um, you know, I, I think that nowadays we're really spoiled for choice on what to play um, I think that honestly, all of those headaches I used to have with hardware and getting things to run, you know, none of that happens to me anymore. Everything's convenient, easy to get. Everything's always on sale and cheap. Um, it's never been, you know, cheaper to play games. Um, I think that, you know, we live in a pretty good age when it comes to, you know, wanting to play games. Um, I completely agree with you. This is right now is truly the golden age and it's been a pretty dry release because you know dry release here for the AAA titles because of covid but that doesn't change a thing um i also just want to highlight that the explosion of the indie scene means that there is a game out there for you i uh, one of the problems with video games once again in the late 2000s early 2010s is that the industry was becoming very homogenized. The, yes. the range of experiences you could have playing video games had really narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And the reason a lot of people were upset was because it felt like they weren't able to get the kind of video game experiences they used to. Uh, video gaming had transformed into something completely different. But what we have today is amazing because instead of it just being one homogenized experience there is literally a game for every single person under the sun if you like you know weird technical rpgs with heaps of interactions you can play 
Divinity Original Sin 2. Um, I've mentioned before, and I'm gushing about it again, that I've been playing Under Rail, which in a lot of ways is a spiritual successor to the Fallout series. Uh, the, the original Fallout games, Fallout 1 and 2. So once upon a time, if you were a big Fallout 1 and 2 fan, maybe Fallout 3 came out and you were incredibly disappointed uh, because it felt like no one was making isometric Fallout games anymore. Well, nowadays, someone is making a new Fallout game. It might not be called Fallout, but it will deliver the kind of experience you're after. And I think that that's wonderful. Uh, if you enjoy video games... As long as you're willing to search for them, you'll find something that you love to pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also interesting would be the inverse of this question. Um, you know, what is like the dark age of video games? <laughs> and I think like, uh, you know, the 2010s uh, early on and in the middle, that period in the seventh generation of consoles where... I guess everything was Call of Duty clones, everything was brown and grey, there weren't a lot of indie titles, uh, it was like Steam had only just started getting its roots and it was buggy and it slowed your computer down terribly, uh, the store was nowhere near as sophisticated as today, it was pretty pretty shitty honestly. Um, and it wasn't as easy to get those older games and just play them like you can now, so... I don't know. I, I'm really happy with how things are going at the moment. Um, yeah, the uh, the pre-Dark Souls era was dark indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, well, honestly, Dark Souls is one of the games that changed the industry. Um, I know you were ragging on Daisy before, but Daisy changed the industry because it showed that there was a hunger for something that was just completely alien and ridiculous and incredibly hostile to the player and it kind of those games and other games of that ilk started to change how i guess developers thought about video games and it opened their eyes to new possibilities so you know mm -hmm. it it's easy to forget but the video game braid that i remember there was a there was like an xbox arcade special where the xbox store uh, promoted these four indie games, one of which was mm. Braid, and that was only in like 2008. Like Steam did not have thousands of indie games getting released every day like you see nowadays. It was like you'd get one to three games a week <laughs> if you were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we live in such a different world to to 10, 15 years ago, and I think it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that our options used to be so limited and now they're just pouring out of every pore man some people complain that there are too many games coming out these days and that is such a non-issue like the steam store can get as bloated with garbage as it can like i don't go there to you know uh to find new stuff there's a there's a search box and that's all i need um you know more options is always a good thing in mind even if that option isn't something you'd ever pick i think that criticism has some validity because there should be some kind of garbage filter you know it's like oh this was made by two people in the space of two weeks and it's a hentai game or whatever you should be able to get rid of that shit from the steam store having it there does create a discoverability issue but 
your broader point that the Steam store isn't where I find games anymore is is true. Like I yeah. I can't remember the last time I naturally discovered something on Steam, whereas I used to do that all the time back in uh, like 2010. Oh, I actually discovered a visual novel um, during the Halloween sale that actually ended up being really enjoyable, uh, Raging Loop. Mm. Um, I thought that was fantastic, but like... Other than that, it's been a long time since I've just seen something and been like, wow, I haven't heard of this before. But I guess I'm pretty, you know, tuned in with a lot of news these days. So, I, you know, it's pretty rare for me to not know of a re- like a major release. Yeah, so that just about wraps it up, Patrick. That was the uh, mailbag episode of 2020. Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for the questions. It were they were a delight to answer. Thank you so much to everyone on our Discord for all the engagement, and thank you to everyone this year who has listened to any of our episodes. Um, at the end of the day, you're the reason we record these episodes, and uh, there's I just love talking about video games. We're so happy to have you here with us on this journey. Um, we are, of course, the Retrospectives Podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I was joined today by James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net, which has links to all of our social media stuff, with the most important link, of course, being the Discord server itself. Um, if you haven't joined, please do. We'd love to talk to you about video games, or we'd have to ha- love you, or we'd love to have you simply listen in as we type furiously at our keyboards at one another. <laughs> um, yeah, so that does it for episode 51. Let's talk a little bit about what's coming for episode 52. So we were tossing up what to do for episode 52 because uh, last season we did a Game of the Year episode. So we've decided not to do that. We think that that Game of the Year episode was a little bloated, a little long, and we kind of rehashed ourselves a bit too much. So instead, for episode 52, we're going to be doing our Lessons We've Learned episode. And we'll uh, we'll come up with a snappier title in time for release. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, instead of just talking about every single game we've played in different categories, James and I are going to highlight some specific points of discussion or specific interesting video game mechanics. We're going to talk to you guys about the things that we care about from the games that we've played this uh, this year. Yeah, there's um, some interesting questions that don't quite fit into the episodes dedicated to a specific show, uh, to a specific game. Um, and I've, you know, I've got a couple for myself that I'd like to discuss in a bit more detail. For example, uh, we played a lot of stealth games over the past year. Mm. So like, I think a bit of a, you know, a deep dive onto the whole experience from start to finish is in order. And, you know, a lot of other little tidbits that don't really fit very well elsewhere. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this a lot more than I was uh, looking forward to our best of episode. But I think we'll also include a little uh, recommendations at the very end for people who don't, you know, pick and choose um, the episodes they listen to for which ones we think, uh, you know, were the best of the bunch. But I don't think it'll be anywhere near as bloated as it got last time yeah absolutely we'll we'll have a quick recommendation hit but uh yeah we we thought about it and we want to be talking about the things that interest us the most and i'm sure you guys will find it the most interesting as well so um that's episode 51 we hope you guys have enjoyed it and we'll see you next fortnight for the lessons we've learned adios thanks for listening guys 